Good morning. Good to see you guys. Today we're talking about Jesus' ascension, and this is kind of a, a hard word for us because sometimes in English we, we hear a word in church that we don't use very often. I, I can't remember the last time I've ever used the word ascension in, in a sentence. And so I was thinking and thinking and thinking, when do we use a word like this, and, and what exactly does it mean? And then I thought of an airplane. I think this is the only thing I could think of where we actually use a word like ascension from time to time. Sometimes when an airplane goes up, we call that the ascent, right? Maybe if you've flown in an airplane, you'll hear the pilots say, we're making our ascent to 20 or 30,000 feet or however high they're going to fly. And then at the end, they say, we're, we're going to make our descent now. We're going down. So an airplane starts down, it ascends, and then it finishes by descending and landing, Right? Well, Jesus is the opposite. Jesus started up in heaven. The creator of all things. God himself. And at Christmas, we celebrate how God came down. He came down to live with us, to be a real human, to live in this world. And then we see Jesus grow up and he lives a perfect life. He never once fails his father even one time. He dies on the cross, a death he did not deserve for the sins of the whole world. And then he rises from the dead. And to show that his work was truly done, that all sin had been paid for, he ascends back to heaven and finishes where he started. Today is a day when we celebrate what the ascension means. It means that Jesus is done with his work. He's back in heaven, true God, ruling over all things for the good of his kingdom. His work of saving you and me, his work of forgiving us is finished and the ascension proves it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for sending your son to be our savior. We thank you for sending him down to earth to be our savior and for welcoming welcoming him back into heaven, our ascended Lord, whose job to forgive us is complete. We, we thank you for the blessing of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. The portion of God's word that we'll focus our attention on this morning comes from the very end of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands, my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, 
he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. This is the word of our God. Please be seated. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock, our risen and ascended Redeemer. Amen. So I mentioned it at the beginning of the service. Today we're, we're looking at this theme that's often used to review things that are good. Maybe you've said something like this recently. Oh, I got nothing but good things to say. What I want you to chew on for just a minute is why would you ever give that glowing of a review about anyone, anything, any place? If you go to a restaurant, new restaurant in town, and you thoroughly enjoy the meal, the, the service is out of this world, you might come and tell a friend, I got nothing but good things to say. Why? Because of qualities, aspects, good work, good service, good food. It could be a vacation destination. It could be a plumber, an electrician. It really doesn't matter. If you say, I've got nothing but good things to say, you are pointing to good qualities, good characteristics, good attributes, things that you want other people to know about so that they might eat there, go there, or hire the same person. But when we have nothing but good things to say about someone, it's always related to a a good quality in them. Which is why this morning I want you to ask yourself, well, why is it that Jesus has only good things to say about his disciples? Because that's what happens in verse 50 of our text. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. The word there for blessed is oilageo. It gives us the word eulogy. And what's a eulogy? It's a good word. If you go to hear a, a eulogy, you expect to hear good words about the person who's being eulogized. And here Jesus, as he's ascending into heaven, he looks down on his disciples and yeah, he blesses them. That's a fine translation. But what he's really doing is he's eulogizing them. He has nothing but good things to say about his disciples. And again, the question is, well, how can that be? Because when we find them in our text, we find them startled, frightened, and confused, thinking they saw a ghost. What is it that leaves Jesus with such glowing review of his disciples as they are these startled, frightened, scared, doubting men. First off, it's good for us to notice that Jesus does not come looking to to shake up the startled. He, He doesn't come to strike fear into the hearts of the ones who are already afraid. And he doesn't come to further confuse those who are already confused. No, he comes to give them peace. Peace unlike anything they have ever known before. And so what does he say to the startled, the frightened, and the confused? He says, look, touch, 
See? Look at me. Touch me. See? I I have flesh and bones. I, I am not a ghost. It is really me standing in front of you, not dead, but alive. He brings them comfort from God's word, showing them that his resurrection, the fact that he's alive, is not some new thing. It is the fulfillment of everything that God had promised since the beginning of time. And so he goes through Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, the entire Old Testament. That's why he was there for 40 days after he rose from the dead. It took a lot of time, I I imagine, to review the entire Old Testament, opening their eyes, opening their minds to understand what God had always said that had now been fulfilled in him, the promised Christ. I wonder if he took them through Exodus chapter 3. We're having a a vacation Bible school this summer. It's going to be campfire themed all outside. We're really looking forward to it. One of the days is going to focus on Exodus chapter 3, the the account of Moses and the burning bush. Remember that one? There's this bush that's on fire, but it doesn't burn up. It's the Lord himself appearing to Moses And he's sending Moses to the Israelites to free them from slavery, to leave them out of the land of Egypt. And Moses is concerned, well, when I go and and tell them that I'm to be their leader and they're to listen to me, shouldn't I tell them who sent me? Wouldn't that matter? So, So who sent me to them? And God says, tell them I am has sent you to them. Tell them I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And that might not sound like much to you, but you've got to remember, when Moses was alive, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for hundreds of years. About 500 for Abraham. These guys were long gone. But God does not say, I was the God. He says, I am the God. Right now, I am the God of them. Because you see, they're not dead and gone. I am not the God of the dead. I am the God of the living. And so as Jesus stands before them, what's the connection? In order for him to actually be the Christ, he he could not be the dead guy that the disciples were going around the world sharing news about. Let me tell you about this great teacher who was my friend. Let let me tell you about this great guy who, who used to walk the earth a long time ago. No. A dead savior is no savior at all. Jesus had to rise from the dead. I wonder when he took them through the prophets if he went through Isaiah 53. The account of the suffering servant where God paints this incredibly vivid picture of who the Christ would be. This servant who would suffer for the sins of the whole world, not for his own sins, he had none, who would suffer for the sins of others who would die a death he didn't deserve, but then would live. In Isaiah 53, we're told he would see the light of life and be satisfied. And there before the disciples stands the Savior very much alive, seeing the light of life and satisfied as his work is complete. I wonder if he took them through psalms like the one we sung today. 
if he pointed them to the writings of all these psalm writers that always looked ahead to something better. Remember the end of Psalm 23? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord for retirement. Is that how it goes? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord for a couple days. No, I will dwell in the house of the Lord, say it with me, forever. Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, they had always pointed ahead to who the Christ would be, the suffering servant who would suffer for the sins of the world, who would die the death that our sins deserve, and who would rise victorious from the dead. Jesus is bringing them comfort unlike anything else the world has ever known, peace that cannot be compared, because his work, his work has cleansed them. That's why he says repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name. We got to get this through our head. Repentance is not something we do. I've been a pastor for almost 10 years and I can't tell you how many times I've come across people who've been Christians their whole lives and they have in their mind I must repent. Repentance is something I must do. And I can understand why a mind might think that way. But that's not how it works. Repentance is not your act. It's not something you do. It's something God works in you, in me. As you go through Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, you have to ask this question, why, why, why? Why do we need a Christ? Why do we need this Messiah? Oh, it's me. I'm the problem. It's my sin. God has to show you that in his word. T- to be repentant is something that God has to do in your heart, in mine. He has to open your eyes to see the truth of your sin so that you see that the fact that you need a savior. Whether you like it or not, you need a savior. And then he points you to Jesus and he says, see, this is the one I promised. This is the one I sent. This is the one who came down, completed his work to cleanse you, and now has returned. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. So, how is it that as Jesus ascends, he can look down at his disciples and have nothing but good things to say? It has nothing to do with them and everything to do with him. Jesus is looking down on a bunch of weak men, just like this room is full of a bunch of weak humans. But he looks down on people who have been forgiven, whose sins are gone forever and ever. And so Jesus has nothing but good things to say about them as he ascends into heaven. And so what happens next in verse 53 makes all the sense in the world. Look at it again. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. This is why your pastors study Greek. You know what they're doing when they're continually at the temple, praising God? The exact same thing Jesus was doing as he ascends into heaven. Same word. Oilegeo. They're at the temple, continually saying good words about God. They got nothing but good things to say about the God who has forgiven all their sins fulfilled all his promises. Could we have a better text for today? It's tempting to look at these 13 
young men and young women, and to celebrate them. It'd be tempting for you to go home today. You're going to have nothing but good things to say about them. For, for two whole years, they faithfully came here and then during COVID stayed home and came on the computer and then started coming here again. Why? For two whole years to study what is said in Moses and the prophets and the Psalms so that God through his word could preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins to them so that they could learn for themselves something that has been true from the moment they were baptized into God's family. You see, these robes are not graduation gowns, they're a symbol. They're a symbol of something that every single baptized child of God has as their own precious possession, the perfect life of Jesus. His robe of righteousness has been given you to wear. And it wasn't given to you when you stood up and said some stuff about God. No, it was given to you at your baptism by God, Jesus' perfect life. Your sins have been removed and Jesus' perfect life has been given to you as a gift. These young men and women have learned that. They have learned that Jesus eulogizes them, that their Savior God has nothing but good things to say about them, not because of how hard they worked, not because of how bright they are, but because of Jesus' work. Because Jesus has removed their guilt forever. He has given them this robe of his perfect life, and so Jesus has nothing but good things to say about them. And so what they're about to do here in just a few minutes makes all the sense in the world. That they would stand up before you and they would eulogize God. That's what confirmation is. It's humans who have learned that God has nothing but good things to say about them standing up and praising God. I had a professor in school who used to say, all praise is proclamation. And all proclamation is praise. So what does it mean to praise God? What does it mean to eulogize God? It means to tell others good things about God, good things about who he is, good things about what he has done, and that's exactly what they're about to do. They're going to join us in the confession of the Apostles' Creed. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Father who created us, the Son who redeemed us, and the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us, they will join us in confessing that common faith. They will say good words about who God is and what God has done. It only makes sense. You might not all have white robes on today, not like this. But as baptized children of God, you all leave here today with your white robe on. Jesus is the Christ. He was dead and now he's alive. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins have been preached in his name to the ends of the earth. God's blessings to you all. As you leave here today, knowing that God has nothing but good things to say about you, and as you leave here with nothing but good things to say about your God. Amen.